0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Okay, so we're in Mark chapter 1. As you can still assume, um, we have gotten down. Basically, we're going to be picking up long about verse number 5, I'll There's one or two things I do want to come back and pick up on and add. uh, Maybe help us to understand a little bit better. Help me to understand better maybe is the best way to put that as we go through. Of course, this is the main outline we're using from chapter 1, verse 1 all the way through 10 and verse number 52. I've handed out some of those. There's still some of those available. Um, I want to continue to emphasize how important it is that when you're studying the gospel accounts to take some time if you choose to. And look at some of those parallels because, of course, there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And although we are studying the most brief and the fastest paced one being Mark, the shortest, uh, there's a lot that can be learned from looking at those parallel accounts in the other of the three gospels. And we will notice a little bit of that as we go through, but I'm constantly going to be putting up this same slide. This is just for chapter one. Of course, there's 16 chapters to go, but... Uh, I'll be putting up this same slide many different times to try to key up on that, particularly as we're starting a session, uh, putting that up so you can make that available. Some of you uh, take screenshots, some of you write it down, or I can give this chart to you if you ask me for it. Nonetheless, I will admit I did it by hand, so there's probably mistakes all over it. Uh, It was a little bit difficult for me to keep flipping and flopping, but I did it, I hope I did, and uh, we're able to gather these up. So these are some of the references. Now today, As far as us being in the latter part of verses 2 through 6, which is the very first line up here, you've got some parallels for that. We're going to hopefully get into verses 7 and 8 and even potentially start into verse 9 so you've got parallels to go along with that. And in that case, this part of the gospel account, all of the gospels share these things in common. Mark has some things he leaves out, uh, but what he does place in his gospel through inspiration, the other gospel accounts pick up on them As well, So that's kind of the last time we'll see that at least for now. As we were closing on Wednesday night, uh, it just so happened that we were kind of getting down to discussing some of these biblical terms, some of these words. We had talked a little bit about already about baptism and the baptism of John and what it was useful for and such. And we'll come back to that in just a few moments, I suppose. But I did want to talk a little bit more about the term confession. We talked about repentance. for probably 10 minutes at least, and how important biblical repentance was, which implies not only a sorrow, but particularly a change of heart, a change of mind. There has to be a change in action in order for repentance to be biblical. And in many cases, and the word attends itself to that, it means to turn away from something, but yet to turn to God. Uh, We've got many people in our society, and I'm happy that they do exist. They may be fewer and far between, but... Uh, We do have many people in society that in some senses of part of the word, they have repented. And that is they may have lived a lifestyle or been involved in some habits or some uh, sinful action that they decided in their mind for really uh, no reason that would be spiritual to just stop that. It wasn't benefiting their life. It wasn't enhancing their life. So they just quit. And they became what I would call good moral people. uh, The type of people that we have in our community that would give you the shirt off their back if you needed it. They're always there to help. And they might not be involved in any particular sinful action or sinful habit. uh, But in some senses, they've still not repented. Why? Because they haven't turned to God as of yet. So they've turned away from something, but not toward God. Biblical repentance involves that change. It involves that full turn, if you will, that 180 toward God. And So we mentioned that from several different categories on last week. But we, I want to discuss with for just a few moments about biblical confession because if you read the scriptures that we have before us, I'm going to back up to verse 1, just read down the beginning of gospel, the Son of God, uh, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, verse 3, Prepare ye the way for the Lord, And make his path straight. Verse 4. And John did baptize in the wilderness. And preach the baptism of repentance. For the remission of sins. And verse 5. There went out of him in the land of Judea. And all that were of Jerusalem in water. And they were baptized of him in the river Jordan. Confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. I just want to key on that idea of Biblical. Confession for just a moment. Now they're basically, and there are a couple more, but basically two main uh, Greek words. That is the older language to which the Bible was originally penned, written down. There are two basic Greek words that back up the English word that we have for confess, or confession, or confessing, whatever derivative of that. And uh, I don't say them properly, but you can kind of see them if you pick them out on the screen. Maybe the next slide will make it a little bit easier. But these two words, homologeo and exomegeo, those two words basically mean the same thing. As a matter of fact, there's not a lot of difference between the two words, albeit there's a slight variant in just the way that they are presented. You know, we might see confession, the world sees confession, without our, our biblical or Bible student eyes on. The world might see confession as, well, that's just sitting down and admitting, yep, you caught me, and I did it. And that would be like the world's version of repentance, too. Well, I'm sorry that I got caught. But in the eyes of God and the way that confession is used in the New Testament, all the way through it, as a matter of fact, through these two words, the word literally means to come into some kind of agreement. That's where God already has his standard. He already has his standards to be set. He's already requiring us to live by his standard. And someone just sits down in their hearts and says, Look, I'm not living by your standard. You are right, and I am wrong, and I agree with whatever it is you would have me to do. So it's the idea of coming in agreement with. And it's the idea of coming in agreement to the point, at least it should be, that that will be in our hearts at least a legal binding thing. If something is legal and binding, maybe you're going down to sign papers on a home or on a car or or, or some other form of that, what does that imply? That implies a contract and that implies something that, according to law, you should not break. Now, if you in turn go against that and maybe you go defunct on that lawn or whatever, what's ultimately going to happen with that? There'll be some kind of collection. And in that case, in most cases, this is, not, this is about this much that I know about legal terms and, and that's really small, but in many cases when you're sitting down to sign, for example, a car loan, which I try not to do, hadn't done in years, but if you do that, they're going to offer you a document that they slide across the table really quick and it's a document of arbitration. What does that mean? It means you go defunct on this loan or you have a problem with a vehicle or vice versa, when you try to argue that with them or if they try to argue that with you in court, guess who basically loses? (laughs) You're gonna lose. You're not gonna have a right to any kind of a really legal setting so much. You're not gonna really be able to go to court. You're gonna sit down before an arbiter, which is probably already been hand-selected by their corporation, who's just gonna say, look, we'll get this money if we have to take it out of your hide. In this case, not to say that has much to do with God except for the fact that God, when we confess to him our sins, we come into agreement with his way and it's not a matter of just coming to an agreement as far as, well, I'll I'll do my thing, you do your thing, we'll just quit bothering each other about it and we'll quit talking about it. We'll just agree to disagree. Never in God's pattern is there a time or a sense in which that can happen. God's ways are his ways, but they're also his right ways, and we come into agreement with that. So these two compound forms of the word, the first one here, the legeo means to speak, but the homo means to speak the same thing. We hear the the, uh, the, uh, prefix homo a lot of times, and it's, of course, in a bad light, but in this case, to speak the same thing. And then when you place in front of it that EX, or at least the E part of it, it just carries the idea that something has been permanently declared to be the case. So biblical repentance is to change, to turn away from sin and toward God, and to do that out of an action that is real. Biblical confession is to agree with God that He is right. And that's the basic two terms. So when you read the scripture that we're involved in right now, particularly here in verse 5, he had that requirement up above in verse 4 that he was coming to preach the repentance and asking, calling for repentance, but he's also calling for confession. And just like with our biblical pattern today, even under Christ's church, even under the New Testament and Christ's law, those two actions are required. We've got to be willing to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, who He says He is. At the same time, be willing to confess and own up to our sins, come into agreement with God that your standard is right, that's the one I'll follow, and in turn be willing to repent or change from that. So there's really not a lot of variant in that. Now, as far as the verse and some of the things I don't know that we keyed on, that's about it, except for the fact that when we've got this idea of John verse 6 coming clothed with camel hair and with a girdle skins about his loins and he did it, locusts and wild honey. As we mentioned earlier from back in verse 2, John was in a sense a, a parallel in many senses to the prophet Elijah. And remember Elijah, Old Testament prophet, was one who was primarily working in and out of the wilderness elijah was one who was described as being dressed or similar to this i think i've heard some even in commentaries call him a wild man john may have looked like that to some but when you think about john in verse 6 it's the way he is described in this we'll see a little bit more about him a little later as well to the people to whom this is originally being written And I mean by that the first recipients of it. We are recipients of it as much as anybody in the first century times, as much as anybody time of writing around the 60-ish, mid-60-ish A.D. perhaps. But the people to whom this is being written, remember, they are persecuted Christians. These are people who at that time anywhere from 54 to about 64 or 65-ish were under the rule and reign of Nero, Claudius before him even. And they are under tremendous and horrible persecution. I named out a few weeks ago at least three different ways, and there are many more obviously, but at least three different ways to which they were being persecuted physically. Some of the punishments that were being given out. And one of those punishments was the fact that oftentimes Nero would have them to be clothed in fresh animal skins, turn them out basically into the courthouse square, and have wild dogs and other animals come and attack them and eat them alive. All right? That being said, you've got Christians who at some point, and they were, they were down in these granaries, they were down in the tombs, the sarcophagus, they were hiding out because that's the life they were having to live at that point in order to survive. And you have someone coming in, they've got this brand new gospel account. Mark, they bring it in. They start to read it, just imagining this. And as they begin to get down here, as we see it in these sets of verses, they say, okay, wait a minute. The forerunner of Christ was in the wilderness, and he was clothed with camel hair and the skins of animals? Uh, I know what happens when someone has an animal skin placed on them. I remember my daddy or my sister, or my co- whomever it was. I remember what happened when the soldiers came in and pulled them out of this place and carried them out in the streets and strapped those skins around them and how they lost their lives. This doesn't look like a good thing. John the baptizer, if he's the forerunner of Christ, why is he going about it after this method? Why couldn't he be more like us and just quietly come into the town and just quietly remind us of the life that Christ is going to live and quietly tell us of this? John was different. And so he was clothed in these skins and had this about his loins. So that's kind of the preacher there, verses 4 through 6. And so I want to draw a contrast now. Uh, Hopefully this will help. It helped me a little bit finally. And I struggle with this, but I'll draw a little bit of a contrast between what John the baptizer was doing on the one hand. He was baptizing people, as it said there, for repentance and for the remission of their sins, as well as the New Testament baptism. The wonder to which we're amenable to, Christ's baptism, had some similar characteristics. Some differences, but some similar. So let's think about John's baptism right here. Here are some of the facts that we have about John's baptism, not just from Mark's account, but from some of the others. Number one, John was known to have told men to confess their sins. And that was a difficult part of that, perhaps. And even though the book of Mark itself ultimately ends up in the hands of Gentiles more often than Jews, the Jews were still able to hear it. The Jews were still knew of John's baptism. And John asked them to confess their sins. Again, that can be difficult. I'm not calling this necessarily sins, but we've got enough children in our house, and you've had them in yours, or maybe do. If you pin a child up and corner them up and say, Look, who did that or did you do that? First thing they're going to do probably is what? Even if you taught them not to lie and done well at that, their mouths become locked, deadlocked. You know, they may have spilled the beans on everything that's happened in the past two weeks at the supper table, but when they're accused of something, nothing. You take a person who has lived under the old law, up until the point. Keep in mind, the time of this writing, or, or the, not the time of the writing, the time of the uh, accounts here, under the old law. Jesus lived and died under what law? The old law of Moses. He lived and died under that law. Anyone who or his constituents lived and died under that law if they died uh, prior to his crucifixion. But you take that time and you've got people living under the old law. They're living under the law of Moses. Most everything they did was about a physical sacrifice, was about a physical meal or celebration, was about going to a physical place, doing so many of those things that the law required of them. And one of the things that they were wanted or desired, supposed to be doing with those sacrifices, often was doing what? The sacrifice was to take those sins and, and, and put them off them. The scapegoat, supposedly in picture, carried away the sins of the people. Just examples of that. It also reminded them, It was, as I've heard it described, Pablo's dog sometimes, just to remind them the need for their, their sins to be remitted ultimately through Christ and reminding them to repent. But for them, and particularly the Jews, you think about the Jews in this day and time, right as this gospel account's being written or right as John the baptizer came on the scene, when they're confronted and and he's telling them, you've got to repent because Christ is coming, you've got to confess your sins because that'll be required for them to be remitted or done away with, removed. They'd be just like me or any child. Cliff had told me a story years ago. I, I met the lady a little bit later because we were in, in a Bible study with her. But he had had a woman, I, f- I forget exactly the details, but to some extent she had told him that she has not, had not sinned in 50 some odd years. She was in her 80s, I think. But you know, Cliff had been studying with her and trying to tell her, you know, look... You you need to be saved from your sins, whatever the Bible study came down to. And she kept saying, well, I'm not worried about that because I hadn't sinned in over 50 years. And she gave a certain number. He and I went back to her several years later. Been a big gap since that. He said, when we pulled in the driveway, he said, I'm going to tell you now. She's going to let us know real quick she doesn't sin. Is that probably accurate? Likely not at any age. But someone in order to be forgiven of a sin has to confess that sin. It wouldn't matter if it's John's baptism or the one into which we, we lie. And that's some of what we have. So that's a part of it. Number two in this, the second one down. John told them to believe on the one to come. We don't have it written in Mark's account because it's so brief. But in John's account, speaking of John the baptizer... The accusation was made of John the baptizer that you might be the Messiah. It, it may be you. You may be Elijah that we've waited on to finally come back on the scene. You may be resurrected and maybe you're the Messiah. Maybe God brought you back. John says what? It's not me. It's not me at all. As a matter of fact, it's not me because as, as John records it, he eventually... Physically it seems Sees Jesus and says Behold the Lamb of God Which taketh away the sins of the world That's right behind him Telling people I am not the Messiah Don't don't put that off on me Because I'm not him I'm only trying to call upon you To repent and confess your sins To be baptized To prepare the way for him And so his baptism Was one that would believe On one to come The next one His baptism added no one to the church. There's a little bracket here. Because the church didn't exist. Our baptism was much different than that. The contrast we'll see in a moment. But he wasn't attempting to add anyone to a church. So John's baptism wasn't fulfilling the same function. Very similar in what was done. Both of them required immersion. Both of them requires confession. Both of them required repentance. Repentance but then different in these ways. There is no connection to Christ's blood in John's baptism. Why would that be? Because it hadn't been shed yet. It was no connection there from that perspective. And John's baptism was described as a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, certainly in Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. Now what about Jesus' baptism, the one into which we are amenable and follow? Jesus' baptism was similar to John's in the way it's worded for the remission of sins. And as Bible students, oftentimes when we see a phrase repeated, the immediate assumption is to say, well, if the phrase is repeated, I mean, it's the same words. It must have exactly and precisely the same meaning. And that's oftentimes true. One of the things that, uh, that I hear people do, this is just a good Uh, a good way of kind of practicing that thing. If you look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, what does that verse say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right. Now, what do we do to help people out who believe, well, there it is. There's one verse that teaches exactly what to do to be saved. And in their mind, their interpretation is, I just need to cry out to the Lord to ask him for salvation, ask him for forgiveness. Where might we go? We can go over to Acts twenty-two sixteen, where Ananias comes up to Saul at that point and says unto him, "Arise and be baptized, washing away your sin." What's that last phrase? It's the same phrase, exactly the same phrase, and it means the same thing in that case, because the first Romans ten thirteen is often misinterpreted or misunderstood. The latter is more a proof of the fact that calling on the name of the Lord is what happens when one, when one arises to be baptized. That is what happens. In this case, there's no denying that both baptisms are, quote, for the remission of sins. But what might that mean? Well, this one here, Acts 2.38, Jesus' baptism was not looking forward to something that had not yet come. John's was. John was telling them to repent and confess for the Christ that was coming, for the sins or the blood that was going to be shed, for the church that was going to be established, looking this direction. By the time we have Acts 2.38 recorded, same phrase, it's in a different time frame. At Acts 2.38 and forward, under which law were those people and us to obey? New Testament. Prior to Jesus' death on the cross under which law? The Old Testament. They're teaching the same things. They're calling upon the same things, but they're not bringing people to the same places. John's baptism was that of repentance and confessing of sin, which would have been a hard pill to swallow for anyone. And then in turn... We have the baptism of Jesus accomplishing something different. So one also puts on Christ. Galatians 3.27, Romans 6.3. They're added to the church. That's the contrast. Acts 2.47, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. It connected them with the blood of Christ. These verses, Romans 6, 3 through 6, Matthew 26, 28, Acts 2.38, Revelation 1.5, we oftentimes throw in the middle of that, and it saves us. So John's baptism, albeit, was worded in a similar manner and intended for similar purposes, could not accomplish the same things. Couldn't accomplish that. Clear as mud? Here's something that helped me a little bit last night. And I looked through every translation I had access to was probably upwards of 40. 40. And that is the ASV. That's the 1901 ASV. The new, the new NASB did not do this. The new King James did not do this. None of the other translations did it. But the ASV of 1901 actually, instead of putting the word for, F O R, put the word unto the remission of sins. How do we often define unto? Because we don't use it every day during our, during our normal speech. How do we define unto? Future, in the direction of, toward. And actually, when I looked up the word, actually, when I looked at the word here, ace is what it sounds like. E I S is the English letters that transliterate to it. The word can mean a lot of things, but one of the things it means primarily is toward or unto. Actually, this may be one of the most accurate translations, except for the fact we don't talk that way. So that's something there. So what this describes as, and it words the whole verse a little bit differently, John came, who baptized in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance towards the remission of sins. Why would he have to preach toward the remission of sins and not just grant it? Last two slides. Jesus hadn't come, blood hadn't been shed, church hadn't been established. And so that just a little bit of helpful there, the way that they translated that. So back to our text. We're in verse seven. So John had the camel's hair. He came baptizing for the remission of sins, calling upon them for to confess their sins. Verse 7. And preach saying, There is one that cometh there and preach saying there is. Cometh one mightier than I, after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I, John says, have baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So there are obviously going to be some more contrasting here, the types of baptism and the capability of their baptism. First of all, when John is saying to us, or when it's penned about him at least, that he preached, the idea there is he preached two different things. There are probably 200, but I came up with two that jumped out. Number one, he preached the power of Jesus. That's kind of what he references here. And he preaches the preeminence of Jesus. Now raise your hand if you used the word preeminence this past week. Any of your comments? None. Preeminence is the idea of something being brought to the top. It's raised high, there's nothing above it. It it could be there because it's the first of a thing, or it could be there because it's just simply the most prominent of something. It's the most important of something. Out of these two individuals, John the Baptizer, on earth, living, breathing, Jesus Christ, on earth, living, breathing, at that time, who's more important? Always Jesus preeminent. So whatever it is that Jesus did in practice, in word, in deed, in wonder, whatever it is, that becomes the preeminent practice of anything, of anything that was said. So you get to other New Testament writers, and I'm not implying that they did, but if Peter or Paul or John or Mark or John the baptizer, if any of those people had said anything different than what Jesus taught, would they be right or wrong? Because he's preeminent. So John presents him in this case, this proclamation is what I've called verse 7 and 8. He presents him in this case and says, look, he comes with all power. He comes with all preeminence. He said, there's one that cometh that is mightier than I. He's mightier than I, whose shoe after which the latchet of his shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down. Now, in Jesus' day prior to and, and such, for many of the important people of the world, I don't think any of us would have probably been able to fall in this category, but for many of the important people of the world in that day, you might say the more wealthy or more well-to-do, at least those who thought they were. I used to use a term uh, uh, you may have never heard of. Michael probably would, some of this age group. You ever heard of a clicker? You know what a clicker is? A clicker it was a made-up term probably straight out of Mumford, and all it meant was that's somebody who tries to look like more than they are. You know, they they may have a pair of $200 blue jeans, but they may live in a cardboard box. That's a clicker. They try to look. So there may have been people in this category, I'm about to mention, who didn't have the means, but they wanted to present themselves as such. In that case, oftentimes it would be a slave. And many times the lowest of the slave in a household in and around Jerusalem and Rome who were given the task of unbuckling and pulling off their shoes at the end of the day. These Jews, these scribes, these Pharisees, whoever, who'd been walking down the city streets all day presenting themselves as something that maybe they were even not, they come into their homes at the end of the day, and they did not even take off their own shoes. They had somewhat else to do it. And we know that tied to that oftentimes was a foot washing as well which Jesus is going to share with us in the gospel accounts, and he's willing to even do that himself, so he's a servant. But John says, look, I'm not even worthy to get down and unbuckle or loose the shoes of Jesus. I'm not even good enough to be a slave to him, in one sense. (laughs) In that day and time, it had some impact. But Look at the next part of this, verse 8. He said, I, John. I indeed baptize you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, today when you and I follow the New Testament pattern of baptism, how, do, how, how does that baptism look? What does it look like? How is it accomplished? A person is brought to a pool of water and fully immersed in that water in order for what? Come in contact contact with the blood of Christ. We had a few references like that a few moments ago. Revelation 1 and 5 was one I added as I went through. to Come in contact with the blood of Christ to be brought out of that water. What power is in the water? We would say the blood of Christ we'd also probably have to admit the Spirit. Now, not the Spirit, and we'll, we'll fix to get to this, but not the Spirit as far as I pop up out of the water and I start healing folks or speaking in tongues and all the other stuff that some of the religious world would point to, different idea. But when we go into the baptistry, we are coming in contact, similar to what Jesus is going to do in the next part of the context, we're coming in contact with the three persons of the Godhead in one sense, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They're taking part in this. They fulfill their roles in this. And so what are some of the differences in that? Now, this is definitely a screen that, don't quote me from your notes. I put it up here, but I, I'm still, still reeling through this idea. This phrase, the latter part of this phrase, John says, I baptize with water. I think a good way to put that is I baptize with water only, that's all I got. His baptism was more along the lines of, the accomplishment of it at least, more along the lines of the Jewish cleansings, the Jewish baptisms, which would then bring proselytes in. Sometimes the baptisms, if you will, the immersions they took part in were nothing more than baths. Now they used them for more than a physical purpose in their minds. They used them for a spiritual cleansing of some sense. But in general, it came down to the fact as far as their sins being changed at all, it was no better than a good shower. John baptized with water only. He's telling them that Jesus will baptize. I'm in mean, verse um, 8 of this. I indeed baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So there's some contrast available here. Number one... In this contrast, John's baptism is more like the, what is spoken of to inaugurate, to be inaugurated by Jesus. Jesus had the power. Jesus had the ability. Jesus had the authority for his baptism to be something different. But in the denominational world, when they come across the phrase, or when the phrase comes out, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, a lot of times people look at that and say, well, look, that just, that's, that's, I mean, they'll use the exact phrase. That's Holy Ghost Baptism. You know, that'll bring upon you all sorts of spiritual gifts and all sorts of, of uh, access to, to maybe even some believe, and it depends on the denomination, some even in the ability to perform miraculous acts. That's something that's so special. They treat it as, and I saw these quotes in different places, one, an empowering experience, empowering experience, or... A second blessing. Now what blessing could God possibly give us that is greater than the forgiveness of our sins? I mean, if, you, if, you, if, you, if there were two blessings and, and maybe you had to pick or choose, I would either have my sins forgiven or be able to do miraculous acts and have miraculous endowed knowledge. Which one do you choose? But you best be choosing the salvation, the forgiveness of sins, because that's the one that matters in eternity. Now that being said, there's no denying that during the first century, many did have spiritual gifts that were given to them. What did Jesus promise his disciples? You find this listed in John's account. It's mentioned in the other gospels as well, but John chapters 13 to 16. I will send to you a... Comforter the Spirit the Holy Ghost same idea same personality of God and he will guide you to all truth He he, will teach you what to speak what to say you won't be in a bind where you you say well, I just don't know that God supplies he allowed those men through the laying on of hands from the apostles uh, To go out and actually lay hands on men and heal them or cure them or raise them from the dead whatever it was There was access in the first century to a point of a blessing like that. But Jesus baptizing with the Holy Ghost, the grand division of it comes down to the fact that Jesus' baptism saves. It has the ability to save. John's baptism had not that. There was repentance involved. There was confession involved in both, but as far as the... Ability and the distance to which they could go was different. So this context then, verses 1 through 8, basically. Verses 1 through 8 comes down with about three principles. I wanted to, from the beginning, I want to talk about the meaning of the text. We have kind of examined the text. The man of the text continues to be Jesus. What about the message? Well, one, looking back over these eight verses, number one, the promise of Jesus for a forerunner was not an accident. John the baptizer and Jesus were, what what was their kinship? What was their connection? Cousins, Cousins, basically. You almost want to say half cousins because, you know, you got God on the one side. But they're cousins. Jesus did not select himself, John the baptizer, because he said, Look, I don't know anybody that's willing to do this. You look like you're crazy enough. Come on, John, you'll be my forerunner. This is not an accident. It's not a second thought. It's not God taking a plan B. John the baptizer was prophesied in the Old Testament such as or just as much as Jesus was. Two different purposes. Two different intended uh, works, but were baptized the same. Not baptized the same, but were prophesied in the same manners. He was prophesied to be that forerunner. Number two, the need for us To prepare the way for the Lord is still as great. We are not John the baptizer. We are not the forerunner of Christ. As in we were introducing him to the world for the first time. But it is important that we like he did. Are willing to prepare the way for the Lord. In the hearts of others. The way that we speak. The way that we live. The actions that we take. The things that we're involved in or the lack thereof. All of those things can have, to one point or another, some effect on the hearts of someone else. I'm sure all of you at some point in your life have or will you encounter someone that you love or you care about or you're familiar with or you're friends with that you want to teach the gospel and you try to start that and in the beginning, they look at you like you're you're crazy with nine eyes. And they won't hear it. They won't listen to it. What's wrong with them? The ground's not been prepared or or whatever. The ground at least is not ready. And you and I prepare it. On top of that, when you think about the specific way in which it was described as John preparing the way, it said that he will prepare the way and he will make those paths straight. The idea of those paths being straight is they're true. Truth has to be taught. We're the ones to which it ought to be taught. We're the ones to where that comes. And so we must do that in the last place here. Keep in mind our willingness to repent and confess uh, brings us through the full obedience. And we have to do our part in that. That's verses 1 to 8. Lord willing on Wednesday. I get to hit at this again. We'll get started in the next section, which really goes 9 through 20. So it's a large section we're coming up on. So we'll do that on next time. Thank you for your attention and your comments.